0: section twenty-four of a history of our own times volume three by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter forty-one the french treaty and the paper duties part two the effect of the treaty so far as france was concerned was an engagement virtually to remove all prohibitory duties on all the staples of british manufacture and to reduce the duties on English coal and coke, bar and pig iron, tools, machinery, yarns, flax, and hemp. England, for her part, proposed to sweep away all duties on manufactured goods and to reduce greatly the duties on foreign wines. In one sense, of course, England gave more than she got, but that one sense is only the protectionist sense, more properly, nonsense. England could not with any due regard for the real meaning of words be said to have given up anything when she enabled her people to buy light and excellent French wines at a cheap price. She could not be said to have sacrificed anything when she secured for her consumers the opportunity of buying French-manufactured articles at a natural price the whole principle of free trade stamps as ridiculous the theory that because our neighbour foolishly cuts himself off from the easy purchase of the articles we have to sell it is our business to cut ourselves off from the easy purchase of the articles he has to sell and we wish to buy we gave france much more reduction of duty than we got but the reduction was in every instance a direct benefit to our consumers the introduction of light wines for example made after a while a very remarkable and on the whole a very beneficial change in the habits of our people the heavier and more fiery drinks became almost disused by large classes of the population the light wines of bordeaux began to be familiar to almost every table the portentous brandied ports which carried gout in their very breath were gradually banished Some of the debates, however, on this particular part of the budget recalled to memory the days of Colonel Sibthorpe and his dread of the importation of foreign ways among our countrymen. Many prophetic voices declared in the House of Commons that with the greater use of French wines would come the rapid adoption of what were called French morals, that the maids and matrons of England would be led by the treaty to the drinking of claret, and from the drinking of claret to the ways of the french novelist's odious heroine madame bovary appalling pictures were drawn of the orgies to go on in the shops of confectioners and pastry cooks who had a license to sell the light wines the virtue of english women it was insisted would never be able to stand this new and terrible mechanism of destruction she who was far above the temptations of the public house would be drawn easily into the more genteel allurements of the wine-selling confectioner's shop and in every such shop would be the depraved conventional foreigner the wretch with a moustache and without morals lying in wait to accomplish at last his long-boasted conquests of the blonde misses of england one impassioned speaker glowing into a genuine prophetic fury as he spoke warned his hearers of the near approach of a time when a man suddenly entering one of the accursed confectioner's shops in quest of the missing female members of his family would find his wife lying drunk in one room and his daughter disgraced in another in spite of all this however mr gladstone succeeded in carrying this part of his budget he carried too as far as the house of commons was concerned his important measure for the abolition of the duty on paper the duty on paper was the last remnant of the ancient system of finance which pressed severely on journalism the stamp duty was originally imposed with the object of checking the growth of seditious newspapers it was reduced increased reduced again and increased again until in the early part of the century it stood at fourpence on each copy of a newspaper issued. In 1836 it was brought down to the penny, represented by the red stamp on every paper which most of us can still remember. There was besides this a considerable duty, sixpence or some such sum, on every advertisement in a newspaper. Finally, there was the heavy duty on the paper material itself a journal therefore could not come into existence until it had made provision for all these factitious and unnecessary expenses the consequence was that a newspaper was a costly thing its possession was the luxury of the rich those who could afford less had to be content with an occasional read of a paper it was common for a number of persons to club together and take in a paper which they read by turns the general understanding being that he whose turn came last remained in possession of the journal it was considered the fair compensation for his late reception of the news that he should come into the full proprietorship of the precious newspaper the price of a daily paper then was uniformly sixpence and no sixpenny paper contained anything like the news or went to a tenth of the daily expense which is supplied in the one case and undertaken in the other by the penny papers of our day. Gradually the burthens on journalism and on the reading public were reduced. The advertisement duty was abolished. In 1855 the stamp duty was abolished. That is to say the stamp was either removed altogether or was allowed to stand as postage. On the strength of this reform, many new and cheap journals were started. Two of them in London, the daily telegraph and the morning star acquired influence and reputation but the effect of the duty on the paper material still told heavily against cheap journalism it became painfully evident that a newspaper could not be sold profitably for a penny while that duty remained and therefore a powerful agitation was set on foot for its removal the agitation was carried on not on behalf of the interests of newspaper speculation, but on behalf of the reading public and of the education of the people. It is not necessary now to enter upon any argument to show that the publication of such a paper as the Daily News or the Daily Telegraph must be a matter of immense importance in popular education. But at that time there were still men who argued That newspaper literature could only be kept up to a proper level of instruction and decorum by being made factitiously costly. It was the creed of many that cheap newspapers meant the establishment of a daily propaganda of socialism, communism, red republicanism, blasphemy, bad spelling, and general immorality. Mr. Gladstone undertook the congenial task of abolishing the duty on paper he was met with strong opposition from both sides of the house. The paper manufacturers made it at once a question of protection to their own trade. They dreaded the competition of all manner of adventurous rivals under a free system. Many of the paper manufacturers had been staunch free traders when it was a case of free trade to be applied to the manufacturers of other people, but they cried out against having the ingredients of the unwelcome chalice commended to their own lips. Vested interests in the newspaper business itself also opposed Mr. Gladstone. The high-priced and well-established journals did not by any means relish the idea of cheap and unfettered competition. They therefore preached without reserve the doctrine that in journalism cheap meant nasty and that the only way to keep the english press pure and wholesome was to continue the monopoly to their own publications the house of commons is a good deal governed directly and indirectly by interests it is influenced by them directly as when the railway interest the mining interest the brewing interest or the landed interest boldly stands up through its acknowledged representatives in parliament to fight for its own hand it is also much influenced indirectly every powerful interest in the house can contrive to enlist the sympathies and get the support of men who have no direct concern one way or another in some proposed measure who know nothing about it and do not want to be troubled with any knowledge and who are therefore easily led to see that the side on which some of their friends are arrayed must be the right side there was a good deal of rallying up of such men to sustain the cause of the paper-making and journal-selling monopoly. The result was that although Mr. Gladstone carried his resolutions for the abolition of the excise on paper, he only carried them by dwindling majorities. The second reading was carried by a majority of 53, the third by a majority of only 9. The effect of this was to encourage some members of the House of Lords to attempt the task of getting rid of Mr. Gladstone's proposed reform altogether. An amendment to reject the resolutions repealing the tax was proposed by Lord Monteagle and received the support of Lord Derby and of Lord Lyndhurst. Lord Lyndhurst was then just entering on his eighty-ninth year. His growing infirmities made it necessary that a temporary railing should be constructed in front of his seat in order that he might lean on it and be supported. But although his physical strength thus needed support, his speech gave no evidence of failing intellect. Even his voice could hardly be said to have lost any of its clear, light, musical strength. He entered into a long and a very telling argument, to show that although the peers had abandoned their claim to alter a money-bill, they had still a right to refuse their assent to a repeal of taxation, and that in this particular instance they were justified in doing so. There was not much, perhaps, in this latter part of the argument. Lord Lyndhurst fell back on some of his familiar alarms about the condition of Europe and the possible schemes of Louis-Napoleon, and out of these he extracted reasons for contending that we ought to maintain unimpaired the revenue of the country to be ready to meet emergencies and encounter unexpected liabilities. In an ordinary time, not much attention would be paid to criticism of this kind. It would be regarded as the duty of the Finance Minister, the Government, and the House of Commons to see that the wants of the coming year were properly provided for in taxation and when the government and the house of commons had once decided that a certain amount was sufficient the house of lords would hardly think that on it lay any responsibility for a formal revision of the ministerial scheme some peer would in all probability make some such observations as those of lord lyndhurst but they would be accepted as mere passing criticisms of the ministerial scheme and it would not occur to anyone to think of taking a division on the suggested amendment. In this instance, the House of Lords was undoubtedly influenced by a dislike for the proposed measure of reduction, for the manner in which it had been introduced, for its ministerial author, or at least for his general policy, and for some of the measures by which it had been accompanied. It is not unlikely, for example, that lord lyndhurst himself felt something like resentment for the policy which answered all his eloquent warnings about the schemes of the emperor napoleon by producing a treaty of commerce with the supposed invader of england the repeal of the paper duty was known also to have the warm advocacy of mr bright and it was advocated by the morning star a journal greatly influenced by mr bright's opinions and in which popular rumour said very untruly that mr bright was a writer of frequent leading articles thus the repeal of the paper duty got to seem in the eyes of many peers a proposal connected somehow with the spread of democracy the support of the manchester school and the designs of napoleon the third the question which the house of lords had to face was somewhat serious the commons had repealed a tax was it constitutionally in the power of the house of lords to reimpose it was not this it was asked simply to assert for the house of lords a taxing power equal to that of the commons was it not to reduce to nothing the principle that taxation and representation go together suppose instead of reenacting the paper duty the house of lords had thought fit to introduce into the new budget a new and different tax what was there to hinder them on their own principle from doing so on the other hand those who took lord lyndhurst's view of the question insisted that when the budget scheme was laid before them for their approval the house of lords had as good a right constitutionally to reject as to accept any part of it and that to strike out a clause in a budget was quite a different thing from taking the initiative in the imposition of taxation it was contended that the House of Lords had not only a constitutional right to act as they were invited to do in the case of the paper duty, but that, as a matter of fact, they had often done so, and that the country had never challenged their authority. The Conservative Party in the House of Lords can always carry any division, and in this instance it was well known that they could marshal a strong majority against Mr. Gladstone's proposed remission of taxation but it was commonly expected that they would on this occasion as they had done on many others abstain from using their overpowering numerical strength that prudent counsels would prevail in the end and that the amendment would not be pressed to a division the hope however was deceived the house of lords was in an unusually aggressive mood the majority were resolved to show that they could do something mr disraeli in one of his novels had irreverently said of the lords that when the peers accomplish a division they cackle as if they had laid an egg on this occasion they were determined to have a division the majority against the government was overwhelming for the second reading of the paper duty bill ninety peers voted and there were fourteen proxies in all one hundred and four for lord monteagle's amendment there were one hundred and sixty-one votes of peers actually present and thirty-two proxies or one hundred and ninety-three in all the majority against the government was therefore eighty-nine and the repeal of the excise duty on paper was done with for that session the peers went home cackling not a few of them however a little in doubt as to the wisdom of the course they had pursued a little afraid to think on what they had done the house of lords had not taken any very active step in politics for some time and many of them were uncertain as to the manner in which the country would regard their unwonted exertion of authority end of section twenty four